Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is well and good head of content Faye McRae, who joins me to discuss 2024 wellness trends, including new options for postpartum care, AI and fitness, medical testing, wellness real estate, and more. We talk about the upsides and downsides of these trends, why I'm skeptical of most of them, the unmet social needs they're responding to, and how you can set boundaries around trends to avoid wellness traps. This is a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you shortly. Before I do, just a few quick announcements. This podcast is made possible by my paid subscribers at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Truly paid subscriptions are what helps keep the show going. They keep the lights on. They keep me able to pay my editor, my assistant who helps manage all the moving parts that go into producing the show and help keep me able to make the best free content I possibly can. Paid subscriptions also get you great perks like early access to every episode, bonus episodes like one I did with Faye, which will come out later this week, bonus Q&As where I answer questions just for paid subscribers, subscriber-only comment threads where you can connect with other listeners, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. This podcast is also brought to you by my second book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is available wherever books are sold. I'm so psyched that Self Magazine picked it as its number one wellness book of 2023, and they had this to say about it. If the promises and often unfounded prescriptions of the wellness industry tend to leave you feeling, well, worse, The Wellness Trap by Christy Harrison belongs on your bookshelf. In her second book, Harrison, a journalist, registered dietitian, and certified intuitive eating counselor, tackles diet culture, influencer trends, and the alternative medicine practices that can end up causing more harm than their more conventional counterparts. Turning a critical eye on a multi-trillion dollar global industry, the wellness trap equips readers to navigate tempting promises and claims in a way that will actually leave you feeling seen, heard, and helped. If you want to buy the book or learn more, just go to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. That's christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap, or you can just go to your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Faye McRae. So Faye, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to dive in and talk about 2024 wellness trends. But before we get into that, would you just be able to give our listeners a little taste of who you are and what you do and sort of how you ended up working with Well and Good? 
Yeah. So my, my path to wellness was kind of a, a little twisty turny. I practiced uh, healthcare law for quite a bit of time before transitioning into journalism. Uh, but I joined Well and Good about I guess, six months ago. It was last July, the end of July. Um, and have just been diving right into just uh, working with our teams and really defining what it means to be well. So we talked a little bit beforehand about how I'm coming at things with a skeptical perspective. And, you know, I'm generally a skeptic of wellness culture. And I tend to view most wellness trends with this sense of like, oh, God, what now? You know, yeah. just like, <laughs> ugh. but it's also kind of like a train wreck that's hard to look away from. Like, it's this interesting feeling when I when I read a lot of trend roundups. But this one actually feels different in some ways. Like there are definitely still a few trends in it or, or a number of trends in it that I'm skeptical of, and we'll get into that. But I was also pleasantly surprised by some of the trends. So can you tell me a bit about how you and your team approached making this list? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big deal for us um, at Well and Good. We spend a, a lot of time like social listening, talking to industry sources, talking to experts, and really see what we can confidently predict will be bubbling up in the year to come. So it's not a short process at all. I think, you know, there's probably healthy, a healthy degree of skepticism, even within our own teams, kind of looking at these things and challenging them. You know, the tough thing is some things will be trends that we, we may have feelings about, and, and we try to be transparent about that in our reporting. Right. Because, yeah, it might be something that is just happening out in the world and you have no control over it, even if you don't want it to be. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the methodology your team used to identify these trends? I recently spoke with Jessica Elefante, who's a former marketing executive who now critiques the marketing industry. And she has pointed out that many trends are driven by brands trying to make them trends or like trend forecasters who are actually also kind of consulting for companies and things like that. I know you had an editorial vetting process for the trends and it sounds like it was pretty involved, but I'm just curious if there was a sense of pressure ever from marketers trying to make things into trends that came up during that process and sort of how you navigated that. Yeah, you know, no. And and it's so interesting because this is my first trend cycle at Well and Good. So I definitely came in like, how do we typically do this? And editorial integrity is something that's very important to our core editorial team. So it usually starts with a pitch. You know, it starts with something that one of our editors seen out in the world, one of our writers has seen, and they bring it to the team, you know, and we had many that kind of stopped right at the pitch process of like, eh, I don't know if this is a thing or this feels a little gimmicky, but, you know, it, it starts in internally. And that's why we wait so long to kind of start talking about the list, even teams outside of editorial within well and good don't know what's on our trends list for quite some time to their frustration often because, you know, they want to prepare design and all those things. But we worked very hard to preserve the editorial integrity of our trends list. That's really interesting. Yeah, I saw in the methodology listed on the site that the editorial team vets at each each idea for brand alignment, gathers research to support the trend, and interviews stakeholders, including industry experts and company founders. And then there are several rounds of revisions that prioritize clear evidence, you said. So it really, it sounds like there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just like, oh, this seems interesting, or this I've seen this everywhere. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Several rounds of review, several rounds of editing. And, you know, I, we've even had things that we've drafted and kind of mid draft, like, eh, we don't think that this is this is where we want to go or the direction we want to go in. And is that sort of based on the editorial mission of Well and Good to be more evidence based or sort of be a, a, a home for discourse about wellness that's a little different than dominant wellness culture? Yeah, I think it could be all of the above. Sometimes it'll, it'll be something that we may even just be a little ahead of. Like we kind of want this to be a thing, but we don't know that it's necessarily going to be a thing just yet. 
There were a lot of areas in that space with the environment. I think there's a lot of things popping up in response to sort of climate change. And, you know, there's some cool innovations happening that kind of we want to take off or like we think could be really cool, but maybe aren't quite there yet. There's just also been things that we thought, "Eh, maybe this is a little more aspirational than accessible. So this may not really meet the needs of our audience. So it's a variety of things that can kind of stop a trend. That's interesting. And it sounds like you didn't want to put your thumb on the scale too much for any trend either. Right. Yeah, for sure. So for listeners who haven't read the piece, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but could you just give a quick overview of the 10 trends? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So our first trend is, and this is in no particular order if you go to the site, but our first trend is around postpartum care and some cool things we're seeing happening in the fourth trimester. Uh, We have a trend related to the sauna industry, wellness in real estate, healthy eating in terms of like functional foods, home fragrances, home scents. We see some great trends in the AI fitness space, barrier care for for skin, uh, hair longevity, and also some really cool smart products related to medical testing. Yeah, there's there's so much there. And I want to get into, you know, obviously, we're not going to have time for a deep dive into all 10 of them in this episode. But I want to start kind of looking at the bigger picture level, because I know that's something that you and I both think is important to have like a systemic analysis of why wellness trends catch on and what they're symptomatic of in the culture. So what gaps in the healthcare system or the social safety net or just other needs do you see these trends as responding to? Yeah, I mean, goodness, you know, I think it's one of those things you you don't always want to say the quiet part out loud, but like our medical system is just so broken, you know, and I think so many of these trends, there is a thread of people trying to fix it, you know, or respond to things because people can't get appointments with their doctors or, you know, we're seeing some health disparities in certain area or people aren't getting the right diagnostic test. So you see a lot of industries popping in and saying, hey, you know, we're going to do it on your smartphone or, you know, in the case of our our first trend around postpartum care, you know, we know that this is a a very sensitive time for someone who's recently given birth and we want to find some ways to meet their needs. Yeah, I feel like that, especially postpartum care is one where I think it's just so obvious. I mean, for myself now as a mom within, you know, having gone through that, but I think even before I was dimly aware of it now, I think I'm super aware of it, that the healthcare system is just totally inadequate in that regard. So we'd love to dive a little deeper into that trend. The reporting in that piece talked about how we only get one checkup at the six-week mark after giving birth, and that in 2022, the CDC reported that maternal mortality is most common in the year after a baby is born, which was interesting to me, and I, I didn't actually hadn't actually seen that before, with mental illness, including overdose and suicide as leading causes. It's just like, whew, you know, I'm curious how this trend of postpartum care is helping to address those issues, those very deep, important issues that society just has not been able to address. Yeah. I mean, those those statistics are just so dire and triggering. You know, I'm also a mom. My last son, I, I had postpartum preeclampsia following his birth, which I didn't even know was a thing, you know, and I ended up back in the hospital about a week later. For so many reasons, that period of time is just so sensitive for birthing people. And what we're seeing in this space is a lot of companies, a lot of nonprofits kind of popping up and saying, hey, you know, we know you need support. Whereas in the past, it was, you know, call us if you need us. And now it's, we know you need us. And here are some ways that you can get access to support. So, 
we're seeing uh, virtual care um, and we're also seeing places that allow for you to go with baby in those weeks following birth to get extra support. In some ways, it's sort of like duplicating what maybe our grandparents' generation had, and that's community, you know, people around you to support you, you know, following the birth of the baby. And it's just these great things popping up now to, to provide that support. Yeah, I really feel like that's such a missing piece. I had a traumatic birth experience and a really rough recovery and complications, and I was flagged as being at risk for postpartum depression, anxiety, and given a support group through the hospital, which I was like, okay, this is promising. You know, it's cool that they like had a social worker talk to me in the hospital. They set me up with this support group. But, you know, it met once a week and everyone was busy and it was kind of like people were in and out and I didn't always go. And beyond that, there was really nothing. There was no extra checkups. There was no mental health screenings until my six-week appointment. And I was just on my own to figure out resources and cobble together a team to help with. I mean, I thankfully already had a therapist who I worked with and was knowledgeable about postpartum stuff and found a, a lactation consultant who worked virtually, but still, you know, it just didn't feel like enough. And I don't have a lot of family living nearby and family helped out for a while and came and went, but like that whole first year is just so hard. And I feel like there's just not enough support around that. And not to mention the lack of, paid family leave in this country, you know, like that's just once you're in it and experience it, I think it becomes clear just how necessary that really is. So I can definitely see why this is such a glaring hole that needs to be filled. And I'm grateful that private companies are stepping into that void, even though I think it it really is something that society needs to address at the systemic level. Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, your body just undergoes, it goes through a massive shift, right? You know, physically, emotionally, hormonally, you, you, you know, experience a complete life change and having a new human, <laughs> you know, <laughs> under your care. I mean, there's just so much. So, you know, it's great to see solutions coming into this space. Of course, there's always more that could be done, but I love this trend so much for that reason. Yeah. I mean, the postpartum retreats were one thing where I was like, oh my God, that sounds so amazing, but also right? so expensive. <laughs> like, yes. Like, oh. <laughs> and I liked that there were tech companies, like companies doing things on your phone that could be with people wherever they are. But I also think this idea of like having a two week stay at a postpartum recovery center, honestly, that should be something that is covered by insurance and that happens in a hospital or a birthing center or wherever already. Yeah. And, and a lot of these models were based on South Korea, which has like just a customary postnatal care practice where someone comes in your home and, and helps you out. And you're right. You know, so much of it is, is very, you know, cost prohibitive. I think that's why it's great to see some of these virtual options popping up. Cause like, let's face it, sometimes you don't even have the option to take that much time off. Right. Or you have other children at home, you know, it's not always easy. So it's great to see kind of alternatives there as well. Yeah, totally. And the, the idea that some people are going back to work two weeks after giving birth or less sometimes, you know, it's just yeah. mind boggling, the lack of, of social support in this country. I mean, sometimes when I see stuff like this, I'm hopeful that while this is like industry coming in to fill a void left by what should be a robust social safety net, that it also speaks to like the situation is untenable. And even with these solutions that are sort of like stop gaps to help us get by, becoming very obvious to a lot of people that this is hugely problematic and 
maybe there's something that can come of that organizing wise, legislative wise, policy wise, you know? Yeah, 100%. So speaking of social safety net and the gaps in the healthcare system or in the social safety net that these trends are addressing, what are some other ones that you think some of the other trends are responding to? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, probably the next one that comes to mind would be the medical testing, you know, seeing some smart gear rise up in order to give folks these pre-diagnostic tools to kind of go to their doctor with. I think, you know, I know for me personally, I had a physical scheduled and then the doctor left the practice and then I had to get another physical scheduled and it was like six months later. And, you know, if you're experiencing anything that you want to talk to your doctor about or your provider about, sometimes just going down the rabbit hole of Googling isn't the best solution. And we're seeing a lot of these smart products come up that's really transforming everyday gear and everyday wearables into sort of these pre-diagnostic devices. So I think that's another one that I see a strong tie between there was kind of an unmet need and and really with serious consequences. And we see these things popping up to fill it. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a real unmet need for like access to and sort of touch points with care providers throughout the year and not just these once yearly physicals that get pushed back and or appointments with specialists that also take a year to schedule and then get rescheduled and yeah, yeah. push back and push back. And I also think that the wearables thing has always been a little bit worrisome to me, I think, because I've seen so many people who struggle with disordered eating get really obsessive with like their steps or they're tracking their eating or tracking their symptoms. Or now it's like gut health and obsessively tracking everything around that. And I think that when people get all this biometric data, it can just feel more and more overwhelming. And also there are a lot of false positives, perhaps, and unnecessary anxiety that can be created if something detects a minor anomaly that the doctor isn't necessarily monitoring or involved and you know something just pops on your smartphone that's like you might have you know such and such or high levels of whatever and i think in some cases doctors sort of know that there's a lot of false positives in over testing right and in a lot doing a lot of excessive testing and over treatment and so they're trying to avoid putting people through that whereas lay people might not see those downsides, those potential downsides to having all the the wearables and the technology kind of at their fingertips. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think that that's one, just to your point about these tools being anxiety inducing. During the pandemic, my, my father had to get a pacemaker and he ended up getting a smartwatch, you know, to kind of monitor his heart rate. And it became apparent to me that it was just causing him a lot of anxiety because he was constantly looking at it. So I, I think that there is something to be said for really knowing yourself and, and determining whether or not these are the right fit for you for that reason. And also just being aware too that you know they can't be 100% diagnostic. Ultimately, you do have to get diagnoses from your doctor. So you know it's so important to be able to view it with that lens as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think with marketing the way it is and and things feeling like, oh, this is an exciting new development in technology and I want to be on the forefront of this and like how cool that my watch now does this or whatever. I think it's sort of easy sometimes to get swept away in the excitement of it and the newness of it rather than taking a step back and being like, I know myself, I know my tendencies, I'm not going to go down this road, which is something that I have learned to do and like practice pretty consistently. And I think that's part of the overall skeptical orientation where I'm just like, okay, what is this? You know, and I'm like, I know myself, I know that this could be just another thing to obsessively check. And I don't want to put myself through that. 
Yeah. What's interesting about this trend in particular, though, is it's incorporating this technology into things that you're already utilizing, which, you know, I'm sure there's a lot to talk about there, too. But, you know, contact lenses, tampons, I mean, it's super interesting how it's sort of just integrating into things we're already accustomed to using, but now um, adding this layer of testing to it. Yeah, the contact lenses felt like a little more... I don't know, maybe it's because of my bias as like someone who works with disordered eating, who has had disordered eating and like that's sort of my world and like the related disorder, you know, orthorexia, really the disordered obsession with wellness. And I think that that can certainly attach to something like eye health, but I don't see it happening as much versus like the tampons was a little like, oh, to me, I don't know if it's (laughs) partly just because it's like, what is this thing that's going inside my body? But also like, you know, and I think it's, there's something really great about the idea that something could give you like an early warning sign of endometriosis or fibroids or check for infections or something like that. But then it could also flag potential fertility issues or whether you're showing signs of entering perimenopause. And that is like, to me, a little bit sticky because those are big things for people. And when they start to feel like they're at risk of something, or maybe they have problems in those areas, I think it's so easy to fall down diet and wellness culture rabbit holes of like, do this alternative thing or cut out all these foods or all kinds of misinformation out there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think, again, it's probably and and I say this to myself as much as to anyone else, like, knowing yourself and knowing where your tendency lies, you know, for me, I know how I am. I couldn't do constant monitoring. I could not, (laughs) you know, but I think, I mean, I think it's certainly valuable to know that these tools exist too. I mean, if you have a history of diabetes, for instance, and some of these tools can help looking at symptoms, maybe passively. So you're not constantly checking like, what is it today? What is it the next day? You know, this could be a value add. You know, I would say too, like the flag that typically comes up when we discuss these trends is the data, you know, where is the data going? Who's collecting the data? Um, so just being reading in and that maybe that's the lawyer and me too, who's just reading the fine print always, you know, always knowing where this is all going to take you. Do you advise reading the the terms and conditions for everything? It's, I mean, yes, it's tough, right? Because they're usually so long and so small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely. I mean, you know, all the things that need to be said are usually in, in those pages. Yeah. And if there's something that you really feel like you need, but the terms and conditions are basically like you sign away all your data if you're using this, which I mean, for me as someone who's very privacy focused, there still are sometimes like apps on the app store where it's like, we're going to collect private data about you. But I'm like, well... I don't want that, but I need this thing for a particular use, you know, like, I guess I'm going to just hold my nose and do it. But it's, you know, it's not great. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there are risks and benefits of almost anything, you know, so it's, it's always important to just weigh those. Yeah. And I like what you said about knowing yourself too, and knowing that, like, if you do have tendencies towards becoming obsessive about something or, having it trigger disordered eating or disordered relationship with wellness, maybe it's best to stay away from that stuff in the first place, even if it's tricky, right? Because if it is a trend, then people around you are doing it, then it's like, it's popular, it's going to be advertised a lot, cool people on Instagram are talking about it, you know, it's, there's this whole machinery that makes you feel like pulled in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's it's tough, you know, and I, I mean, there's so many layers there and so many things that factor in, but I think it's always kind of rooted in those honest conversations about where your boundaries are. Yeah, for sure. 
I think another one that I felt raised some red flags for me in that area was like AI and fitness. It makes total sense that that's a trend, right? Because AI is taking over everything. It's revolutionizing a lot of things. It is definitely reducing the amount of labor that goes into a lot of processes and stuff like that. But the idea of a bot giving personalized workout recommendations just feels to me sort of instinctually like a bad idea for anyone with a disordered relationship to food and movement, like people who are prone to overexercise and things like that, because there's certainly problems with live human personal trainers, right? But at least they might have a chance of spotting signs of overexercise or orthorexia or other forms of disordered eating. Of course, that's hit or miss because many trainers have disordered relationships with food and fitness themselves. So it's sometimes exacerbating things, but at least there's a chance, right? At least you're you're with someone where there's sort of a more responsive human element to it. Whereas with these bots, it's like, are they trained to flag these things or could they just give advice that makes things worse, that actually takes someone's disordered eating or overexercise in a really dangerous direction? And then to learn some of them are giving food advice too, that just feels like potentially a recipe for disaster for people who are already struggling with disordered eating or have any sort of tendency for it. And then when you layer on to like genetic information, which some of these companies are doing, I just feel like that's the genetic information that those companies spit out causes so many people to worry about their risks unnecessarily and things that are like probably never going to come to pass in their health profile. So yeah, I'm just curious how you think about navigating that for people who are in that place. Yeah, I think, again, I think it's one of those, one of those things, you know, in some ways, I saw a lot of value here and that like, you know, fitness AI, for example, is like $90 a year for, you know, personalized fitness and trainer, whereas typically for a trainer, a personal trainer in person, you end up paying more than that per month, likely. So I saw cost benefits there as well. For those of us that maybe have some predispositions in, in our lineage. Like, you know, for instance, I've had a lot of history of heart disease in my family. You know, I know some folks have diabetes in their family. You know, are there there ways that some of these fitness apps or the, the fitness AI can take into account those things and help make healthy lifestyle choices as a result of those things? There are benefits there. You know, I think it always gets tricky when it's just kind of weight loss for the sake of weight loss. And also, if if you historically have like a tricky relationship with fitness and and diet, it's probably one of those things you want to think twice about, you know, just because to your point, you lose a little bit of that human element when a lot of these things really do impact all sorts of layers, you know, emotional, mental health and wellness. So similarly to kind of the medical testing, you just want to be respectful of your own boundaries obviously consult the the support of a mental health professional but some of these trends just aren't for everyone. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really helpful thing and I one of the reasons I wanted to talk about these trends here cuz I think helping people know what's coming and what they're going to see a lot of and what might feel like suddenly everybody's doing it and they're feeling compelled to do it. It just helps to pre-think through those issues and think about what is actually in line with my values, my well-being, how I want to take care of myself, like my needs as a, an individual. Yeah, 100%. I think on the subject of the need that a lot of these trends meet is the need for time and convenience in this stage of capitalism where we're being asked to work just ridiculous hours and don't actually have time for things like doctor's appointments or postpartum care or, you know 
the family leave for that or whatever. You know, there's this sort of late capitalist marketplace approach to things in a way that's like, yeah, having convenience, having things that make it easier for you to do, say, you know, physical activity without having to leave your home or something like that. Like that is beneficial in a sense when we're living in this situation that we're in. But I do think it's really people are under so much pressure and have so little time. So the convenience aspect of it, I think, is interesting, too, that a lot of these trends are really filling that need of how can things be convenient and quick and easy. Yeah, 100%. And I think, too, you know, what we saw kind of coming out of the pandemic, too, is people were making their homes their oasis, you know, and I think a thread that we see a lot of these trends, too, is just more reasons to stay home, you know, and make your home cozy and comfortable and exactly the way that you want it. And also could, too, also speak to how much we're all working, right? (laughs) You know, and at the end of the day, we just want to be able to decompress. And, you know, some of these things are popping up also to kind of make your home a place of respite. Yeah, related to that, I I've thought it was interesting that the wellness real estate trend was was the number one trend for 2024. I don't know if you like ranked them in any way where it's like that's kind of the biggest one or if it was just a random order. Yeah, no, it's just a, a random order <laughs> on the site. Yeah. Got it, got it. But it was, you know, it's interesting because I have been seeing that mentioned for a few years now and it seems like it's a trend that's been that's been growing in like the hotel space and hospitality space for a while, but now it's starting to come to people's actual homes. And the definition that's given in the piece is like homes that are proactively designed and built to support the holistic health of their residents. And I think that's, you know, there's something really nice about that, especially as someone who works from home and spends most of her time at home. Like I definitely get being concerned about things like air quality and water quality and wanting to have an efficient HVAC system and retrofitting low-income housing and stuff, all of that I think is great. And I wonder about this idea of spa-like amenities, you know, because I I would love to have a cold plunge pool (laughs) or a dedicated relaxation room in my house. But it also feels very out of reach for me and for most people, I think. And, And this sort of aspirational, unattainable aesthetic of wellness, I feel like is starting to creep into home design in that way, where it's like, it's something that people want, but can't attain. And I wonder if longing for that kind of out of reach life is really good for us. Yeah. You know, what's so funny. This is, I think we talked about this at the top of the the hour is that this is one of those trends that we debated a lot because <laughs> when it was initially pitched, my first thought is like, who could do this? Like how much does it cost? Like, where is this happening? You know, and the push was kind of, you know, a lot of times you you see these things start as cost prohibitive. And then ultimately we see modifications making their way kind of down the line in a way that feels more accessible for your everyday person. It's happening, right? So we have to figure out a way to talk about it, but also be honest about kind of how it's manifesting. But yeah, I mean, so much of it you read about and you're like, yes, like I would love this. (laughs) I would, you know, I would love kind of these wellness spaces in my community or like, you know, health centers, you know, walkable from where, where I live. I mean, there's value in it for so many different reasons. I mean, we're seeing things like water quality being taken into account. I mean, just all sorts of things that everyone should have access to um, in this trend. And this is one of those things that I'm hoping becomes more accessible because it just feels like such a need that is missing just in being considered in where we live. 
Yeah. And I do think it makes sense, this idea of like things start out as high end, only accessible to very few, but become popularized and more accessible to greater numbers of people over time. And yeah, that could be definitely the direction this goes. And I think the idea that like retrofitting low-income housing, there's already government funding for that and a program to to encourage that is promising, you know, that it could potentially reach everyone or larger swaths of the population anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of this trickle-down effect of like the high-end stuff becoming more mainstream, the idea of body composition scanning and like biometrics and wearables and things that read all this data at the high end of that trend there's like medical testing powered fitness nutrition and lifestyle coaching companies that you report on where there's like medical spas and this sort of relates to the the wellness real estate trend too in that there's medical spas sometimes in the lobby of these buildings or iv infusion centers and things like that and there's personalized fitness and nutrition and lifestyle coaching companies that are not just an app but like you know a whole experience and a whole holistic program that people will join. And there's something, again, nice about that, that like people could have, act, you know, that maybe this trend at the high end could trickle down to people who need it. And I just don't know how great it is in some ways that IV infusions, for example, are becoming more and more mainstream and accessible because that's something where there's just not a lot of good evidence behind it. And there's certain things that might make some people feel better, but it's really a large, you know, in my understanding, kind of an unregulated space and people are potentially getting really hurt by it. And there's a lot of risks involved, you know? So I think some of the ideas of the high end stuff trickling down, it is disconcerting to me, I guess. Yeah. I think there are things that are, are relatively like, you know, air quality, water quality, lighting, like, you know, just things that we know have a tangible impact on health and we want to I'd love to see those things have to be available at a wider scale. But then you're right. There are these other things that seem kind of more vanity based and like not as well researched. And, and those are the things I think like anything we view with a healthy degree of skepticism and, and also too, as journalists at well and good, you know, always, always do your research. Yeah. And like to someone who is seeing that stuff crop up or maybe has that because I've seen like IV infusion centers now just kind of walking around certain neighborhoods, you know, and LA, there's a bunch of them and, you know, New York, they're popping up here and there too. You know, if someone is feeling tempted to do that sort of thing, do you have any thoughts on how they can maintain that skepticism and approach it in a way that is self-caring? Yeah. I mean, again, I think always being mindful of your boundaries, but also just doing your research and doing your homework. And for me, you know, I, before my provider moved, as I mentioned, <laughs> had a really fantastic relationship with my doctor and I felt comfortable asking her about anything that I was considering or, you know, things that were different, even when it came to my children. So, you know, have those folks that you trust too, you know, because there is something to be said for experts and people who have worked in these spaces and hold the degrees and have done the studying in these areas and, you want to give credence to that as well. Because also, I mean, there's other things to think to, to factor in too. If you have any pre-existing conditions, you know, how do certain things impact you differently than they may impact someone that doesn't have a condition? So you just want to be mindful of all of those layers before diving into any new health or wellness routine. Yeah, that's so important. 
one thing I'm asking all my guests, because this podcast is called Rethinking Wellness, is how are you rethinking or have you rethought wellness in light of your work, whether it's your work reporting on these trends or just your work with well and good in general or as a journalist covering this area in general? Yeah, oh, that's such a great question. And I love it. I feel like there's so much to be said about that particularly even as a woman of color, I think so much of wellness has been inaccessible. You know, you kind of conjure up a particular image in your mind. You know, you think of someone maybe drinking a green juice, like on a yoga mat with tons of disposable income. There's just kind of these images that you conjure up when you think of wellness. And I think that wellness looks different. Sometimes it's messy. It looks different for different people. It inhabits different cultural customs and competencies. I mean, there's so many things that you can think about. And I think for us at Well and Good, it's so important to center autonomy and folks' own path. You know, there's no one-size-fits-all solution here. You should be able to pursue things that work for you without stigma, without shame. Like, we all approach these things from different vantage points. So for me, it's really centering that personalization and autonomy in how folks approach wellness. And again, just shaking off that that urge to judge yourself and others on that path. Yeah, that's helpful advice. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for everything you shared. This was really wonderful. And I'd love to hop over to do a little bonus interview for our paid subscribers. But before we do that, can you just let people know where they can find you and learn more about your work and read this piece about the trends? Sure. So you can visit us at wellandgood.com where you can see all of our trends and you can read all of these fantastic pieces by our journalists at Well and Good. And you can also visit us on our socials at I am Well and Good. Awesome. We'll put links to that in the show notes as well so people can find it. Thank you so much, Faye. It's a pleasure talking with you and I'll look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Christy. So that is our show. Thanks so much to our amazing guest for being here and to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support the show by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, early access to regular episodes, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on this show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in the Rethinking Wellness newsletter or on a future podcast episode. This episode was brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. If you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art is by Tara Jacoby, and our theme song is written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care.